0: And most of all, that you are personal. We don't have to pray to a force, and we don't have to pray to a fate, but that we have a personal God who not only created, but also who redeemed. And we thank you in Christ's name for that. Amen. Tonight, we're going to go into Appendix C, and we have uh, handouts tonight for the last half of Appendix C, which was longer than I thought it would be. And then we have Appendix D, and we'll be done with this the suffix to the course. Um, last time we dealt with uh, biology. And if you'll notice, the title of Appendix B and Appendix C has parallelism and it's deliberate because I think that all these questions that keep coming up are questions that involve the category of natural history. We're dealing in both cases, whether it's biology or whether it's, as tonight, we're going to deal with dating systems and measuring ages, uh, you're still dealing with the same topic, natural history. And it's helpful if you keep that in mind. Um, and so when we look at the different principles, we won't get lost for the forest or the trees. What I'm trying to do here is a vast amount of material that are summarized in these appendices, believe it or not. Um, a, a vast amount. And you can just totally get buried in it if you don't see the, the basic argument. So, uh, details come and go, but the argument remains intact. Uh, just to review what we did last time uh, in biological history, um, we pointed out that there, there's a difference in structure between what the Bible says and what is usually given to us in, in our studies. And uh, it goes back to the fact that, as we've said again and again, um, if we have God who is the Creator and we have the universe that is the created, then, and the universe is made of man and nature, we've got major distinctions here the creator-creature distinction and the man-nature distinction. And we have to review these and review these and review these over and over and over and over again until it becomes uh, almost a subliminal reaction to look for these things. Because no matter where you go, no matter what the argument is, you will always, always find that when the Bible is denied, these categories go away. Every time. No exceptions. Every time the Scripture and God's Word are demeaned or lessened, the creator creature distinction goes away. That's why the Bible warns us in the first and great commandment, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God only. Only. Not you will worship Him along with other people or other gods. This is what's wrong with the Gospel. Where paganism has influenced evangelicals today, you can listen to the Gospel presentation. And what you will hear is invite Jesus into your heart because He'll make your life better or something. And that's nothing different than the old, old paganism where in the first century, for example, give you kind of like a history of this, um, in the first century what offended pagans wasn't the claim that Jesus was God. Because they had lots of gods. See, the problem was they absorbed G-O-D inside a pagan frame of reference and the pagans had no problem invite Jesus into the pantheon and he will sit him up here with all the other gods and goddesses. No problem. But what offended, what was so offensive about Christians eventually wound up in the, in the catacombs and getting tossed to the lions was the fact that they worshipped only Jesus and denied all other gods. In particular, one called Curios, also. And the other person to whom Curios, or the word Lord, was proclaimed was Caesar. And the Christians refused to accord him that Curios title. It was reserved for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And in that, they earned the hatred, the animosity of pagan society. The reason is not hard to see because it goes back to this. If Jesus Christ is the creator, you've got the creator-creature distinction. And that means that if Caesar is man, then Christ is higher than man. It's just a reaffirmation of the creator-creature distinction. And this is centrally offensive. So as I go through the details of these little scientific arguments, don't lose the forest for the trees. No matter what we talk about, we're still ultimately talking about the creator-creature distinction. And if I fail to communicate that, then I fail to communicate. Because I don't want you worrying about all the little minutiae. I'm going to deal with some of the minutiae, but I just do that to show you that, indeed, to give you confidence that Christians, on a biblical basis, have answers. So it's it's more just to reassure you. But what I really want you to understand is that these basic categories and basic approaches are uh, unavoidable. And, of course, evolution smears the man-nature distinction. In fact, there are lots of other distinctions in nature. And, in particular, the offensive thing in the bio-realm, or the realm of living things, is the mention in Genesis of kinds. And we showed you from last time that this has important spiritual implications. I can't emphasize that enough. We're not just talking biology here. We are talking about the fact that if the biology is wrong, then all the talk about salvation is wrong because the talk about salvation in the New Testament is grounded on the biological truths of kind, And we demonstrated that last time from 1 Corinthians 15. Or put this way, if you could think of us being in Adam before we became Christians and us being in Christ after We become Christians. We are two kinds. Now, what's the biblical definition of kinds? That they can't interbreed. That you can't go from one to the other. Now, isn't that fundamental to the gospel? If you could go from Adam to Christ, if you could transmute, it would be a salvation by works. What is needed to pass from being in Adam to being in Christ? A new creation. In other words, the same kind of act that created the original kinds is necessary to go from one kind to another kind. You don't evolve. One doesn't evolve from Adam into Jesus. But all forms of salvation by works, and remember, all religion outside of the Scripture is basically a scheme of doing this. Salvation by works is ultimately evolution applied in the spiritual realm, if you can think about it that way. Isn't salvation by works mutating oneself from being a sinner to being a saint, from being in Adam to being in Christ, crossing a kind's boundary. You see, the implication is consistent that from the standpoint of the Bible, these kinds that God has made, reproducing after their kinds, you can't violate these. The whole theory and presentation of salvation in the Bible assumes this is right. So if this is wrong, then flush the New Testament. So that's why last time in Appendix B, we covered evidences of what is going on here uh, with, with how do we support the fact biologically. And we started on page 110 and 111 and gave you the four categories of evidences. And there are lots of little details, but basically one of them is the design and information theory argument, namely that you have these structures... And they don't, aren't explainable sh- sheerly on the basis of chance. second one is that artificial natural selection, while they change and there's adaptations, they don't transgress kind boundaries. Black moths and white moths are still moths. And I think the easiest way to think of artificial natural selection is to look at dogs, because they're familiar to us. Think of all the breeds of dogs there are in the world. Okay? Now just think, if you didn't know there were such things as dogs, and you lived, say, a thousand years or a million years from now, and you were digging fossil strata, and you dug up a skeleton of a chihuahua and a collie, would you ever dream that they were the same kind? You had no, no flesh, no organs, No, nothing except a few chipped bones. How are you going to analyze whether those bones are in the same genera, species, or what? You see, it gets very subjective. So that's why another feature is that in real life, the systematic gaps in the fossil record are enormously important because we may be screwing up the analysis of the fossils we do have, because there may be some of these creatures that are bone structures that belong to the same species and don't represent evolution at all. It represents the same kind of thing you would discover inside canine family. Namely, that you have all this breeding going on and making these subgroups that look for all the world like they're different creatures. A chihuahua and a great dane. I mean, there's a good example. But they're all out of the same group here. So look at the variation that God built into the kinds. But still, they're still dogs. They do not cross over into the feline category and become cats. So that's the central issue. And the bone of contention, if I may use a pun, between creationists and evolutionists is whether this is true or whether it is a continuum. Continuum basically, where everything shades into everything else. The man-nature distinction goes away. We have a chimpanzee looking very close genetically like a man, and so therefore this boundary just kind of gets erased. So it's only, you can't have it both ways. Either you have hard and fast categories in the biological realm, or you have slippery ones. And that is the debate, whether you're discussing breeding, whether you're discussing fossils, whether you're discussing anything else. That's the issue. Do you or do you not have uncrossable chasms in the biological realm? And the reason why, again, evolutionists want to have a continuum is because since they don't have a creator, the only way of of getting... Remember we said that one of the so-called facts of evolution is that you can supposedly order all living things, you can classify them, from complex to simple. And no one's arguing that. No one in the world is arguing that. We creationists are not debating that. We accept that. It's obvious. It's obvious that you can classify them. That's not the question. The question is, is after you've classified them, can you explain the rise of the higher classes, the more complicated classes from the simpler classes? That's the debate. Where did the classes come from? Were these boundaries fuzzy? Were they transgressed so you have an upward development? Or, or, and the only other possible being, is that all these classes were individually created. And that smacks too heavily of supernaturalism to be acceptable to most people. So out of a hatred for supernaturalism, ultimately animosity to the Creator, there's a philosophical horror of considering this hypothesis. But please note, evidence isn't the issue here. Both sides are citing evidence. Evidence isn't going to decide the issue, in one sense. In one sense it does, because the evolutionist hypothesis hasn't proven itself on the basis of evidence, which it says it has. So, last time in Appendix B, we dealt with an aspect of creation, this sentence the deal about kinds. Kinds have to do with living things, plants and animals. The Bible makes assertion that thus and such is the case. So the question, and we want to again reiterate that our faith hinges on fact. We Christians are not often la-la land dreaming this salvation. The salvation that we enjoy through Jesus Christ is based on factual historical claims of the Scripture. Did Jesus rise from the dead on the third day, or didn't he? And if he didn't, he this is a big fraud, big hoax. The Bible, in other words, makes faith contingent on historical reality. That's why, and this, this believe me, a lot of people out there, folks, a lot of very well educated people cannot understand where we are coming from. You'll hear this said, what is wrong with these fundamentalists? But crying out loud, nobody else makes their religious faith based on objective history. We all know as modern people that religion is totally a subjective feeling. It's just something in the emotions. It's not related to truth. It's just an opinion that we hold in our hearts, but certainly not a truth we hold in our minds. That's the view, the modern view, of modern man. And that's why we fundamentalists are the last people left in society, basically, that stubbornly retain the, the linkage between what we believe religiously and what we know to be true. Years ago, i never forget this, a friend of mine had gone, studied at Harvard University, and he sat right in a theology class, right next to a Catholic priest. And he and that Catholic priest were the only ones in the class that fought against all the liberal Protestants when it came to an issue. Later, my friend ran across the Catholic priest after Vatican II and after a lot of the liberalization of the Catholic Church, and he was shocked to hear his friend, the Catholic priest, tell him, Ha! Remember, Bruce, when we used to argue with the Unitarians? Well, I think they were right. This is the Catholic priest now. So he says, Well, wait a minute. How can you be a member of the Catholic Church and believe this? Well, he says, all Catholic theologians are doing this now. We all have come to accept the fact that the the voice of the Church is a voice of religion. And religion, by contention, is subjective. So we don't bother with history anymore. That's the old Catholicism. But that's not the new Catholicism. So, whether it's Protestant or Catholic, it's the same issue again. So, the fundamentalists now, we have become the isolated ones. There are probably a few of the old guard Catholics who believe i mean we would debate about the nature of the church and so on but at least we both held to the fact that there is definite religious truth linked to historical truth but increasingly we are becoming isolated and the more we become isolated in our society and the smaller we become numerically as a percent of the total population the more our rights are going to get stepped on we are rapidly approaching one of the most malign minorities, Chuck Colson said, recent statistic, some guy did a survey in the United States and they, they asked the person, who would you least have likely to be your neighbor? Did you want to be? You know what the most unpopular neighbor was? A fundamentalist. I have some black friends who are Christians and, and one of them who's who been coming to the class here and uh, she was saying, you know, this is interesting. She says, you know, we blacks in the South had to get in the back of the bus. But as a creationist, black or white, I can't even get on the bus. That's how bad it is. So, just to prepare ourselves that we face an uphill battle in our generation because we are the only people in society that hold these, quote, absurd positions. All right, so we looked at the issue then of biology now tonight we want to move into appendix c because we want to deal with the other area the area of physics and we want to look at this issue of the age of the universe because just as in biology it's an issue of these categories so when you come to physics and chemistry it's an issue of how old is the universe and i want to draw your attention to page 114 as i introduced this the same way i introduced the Appendix B on biological realm. I want to go back to the one I am sure you're all tired of seeing, but we want to go back to this anyway. Can't get enough of this. Again, training is largely repetition, and it's just to repeat this. I want to repeat a few points that I've made before. When you look at that chart, no matter who you are, no matter how educated you are, no matter how much experience you have, you have no direct knowledge outside of that box. None of you. Your professors don't. The greatest authors in history don't. The most brilliant people in the laboratory don't. All human experience is in that box and not outside of it. That box is the limit of direct human experience in space and time. You cannot experience anything faster than a fraction of a second. You cannot experience anything that exists beyond the average lifetime. You cannot experience anything and see it below a few fractions of a centimeter in size. And you cannot really observe anything in detail above a certain scale of size. That's your limits. So whatever your view of history is, you've got to contend with this problem. Here, in a very graphic way, is finite, limited human knowledge. We can extend our knowledge in three of the four directions by instrumentation. High-speed films, we can extend our perception down into fractions of a second. At Aberdeen Proving Ground, when you take high-speed photography, I mean, it's into the billionth of a second. when when rounds are ejected from a a gun and they're coming out at very high rates of speed. And you can take pictures and watch the fragmentation of the metal as this happens. You can do a lot of study that you can't perceive. It happens too fast. But you can study it by means of a tool. You can go down in the microscope. You can go up with a telescope. But observe that there's one side of the box that's different from the other three. And don't ever forget it. You cannot extend your knowledge to the right by any known instrument, unless it's a time machine. There's not an instrument to be used to extend to the right. The only thing you can extend partially is human records of people who have gone before you, and you can push that boundary out only so far. And that's it. No more direct observation. So, the question in writing a natural history boils down to this, whether it's a biological history, whether it's a physical history, or whether it's a chemical history. The issue is, how do you know what went on when you don't have human observations as data as to what went on? How do you do that? Well, how it's often done is to say, we conjecture and we speculate that the rules and observations of data that we see inside the box hold outside of the box. Reasonable, right? I mean, after all, what holds here, you would expect to hold on the moon, on Jupiter, outside the solar system in space. So why don't we extrapolate relationships and chemicals uh, laws that we discover in the box, outside of the box? What's the problem with that? No problem except you want to recognize you're speculating. See, that's the point here. We aren't arguing that you can't produce a theory. We're not arguing that you shouldn't teach any kind of theory. All we're saying is that when you discuss this, be intellectually upfront and confess that you are, in fact, extrapolating. Not only are you extrapolating, but if you think of the fact that this limit is only a few thousand years, and you're going to come up with a natural history in which you're talking about millions of years or billions of years, ten to the ninth, and you only have ten to the third worth of human observations? I don't know, but that sounds like a million-fold extrapolation to me. Now, what would you think if I had, and I've often used this illustration, take a thread, a piece of sewing thread, put a little thing on it and pull out the thread? and have somebody take the end of that thread and walk out the door, way out on uh, the street out there. Now, that distance of that thread might represent the amount of time you're extrapolating, millions of years. You know how much the data source would be? About an eighth of an inch of that thread. Now, let's back off and look what we're doing here. On the basis of an eighth of an inch of direct observations, I'm telling you what the thread's doing out in the parking lot? Excuse me. But that is not the hard science of a laboratory experiment. If I can reproduce something in a laboratory, that's what we call hard, rigorous science. But when I start talking about something that's going on in the parking lot on a thread that I pulled off and I've got data an eighth of an inch along the thread, I don't have too much. And that's the central issue that's going on here the contention of the pagan mind is that it has the right to extrapolate outside of the box. We say, yeah, you can try to extrapolate outside the box, but the point is, once you extrapolate outside the box, by definition, you're outside of the box, and therefore you are uncheckable, can't verify it. Okay, so let's then talk about some of the dating theory. If you turn on page 115, up in the top paragraph, I point out that while all this is going on, extrapolating outside of the box, and so forth. You want to be aware that there are spiritual motives here. Remember what I said at the beginning of the course? Don't get snookered when you're trying to answer a question. And I use the illustration, you know, how many times last week did you beat your wife? You can't answer that question without incriminating yourself. You say, no, oh, no, this week? What's happened? What has happened when I ask that kind of a question? See what I've done? I've set it up for you. You're playing my game. I ask the question, and you're foolishly trying to answer my question. No, no. What we have to do as Christians is learn to, yeah, we're going to answer questions all right, but we're not going to naively answer each and every question. Jesus didn't. Look at his trial before Pilate. Pilate asked him, what is truth? sarcastic answer, a sarcastic question. Jesus answer him? No. And I'm sure there were many, many other times when the great saints of the Scripture refused to answer questions because they're stupid questions. In fact, the book of Proverbs has this. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer him. Stupid. Answer a stupid question, you don't necessarily give an answer. Now, that's what we want to do here we want to think about what's going on here and not just say, oh, this is just an innocent, objective, mathematical question. Is it really? Or is this question talking about the very structure of life itself? And if it's talking about the very structure of life itself, there's some spiritual factors that operate here, right? Because a pagan may believe this, but we know the pagan's heart better than the pagan knows his heart. What do we know about the pagan's heart? from Romans 1, that he knows that God is there. And he's spending an enormous amount of energy suppressing the knowledge of God. So, in pa- a paragraph, the first paragraph on page 115, that's why I say what I say here. If you'll follow with me through this paragraph. This pagan insistence upon vast ages is not surprising to any Bible-believing student of paganism. Vast ages, now watch this, Vast ages push back any creative work of God far beyond the human horizon and sense of ethical responsibility to Him. A long chronology offers spiritual relief to the rebellious heart. I'll repeat that sentence. Very important. A long chronology offers spiritual relief to the rebellious heart. If any conceivable creation is too distant in the past to contemplate, then any judgment would probably also be too distant in the future to worry about. Thus, both ancient and modern paganisms agree in conjecturing that the universe, the creature, has divine attributes instead of the creator. That is, it extends the creation. It's a bad sentence in there. What I mean to say is, left out a sentence, transition of thought. What I'm saying there is that by extending time, like this you're building into the universe a semi-eternality in other words you've rendered the creature a creator now you've idolized the universe down at the bottom page 114 I quote something that we saw earlier in the epic of Gilgamesh when I remember we pointed out they lived many days adding years to days we went through that back many many moons ago um I showed you this overhead. There was Enuma Elish, that pagan epic, which we read to contrast it with Genesis. Remember we said, read your Bible and read it against the time in which it was written. Read out the literature and look at the difference. And right there is that phrase. There it is. And it's typical of pagan literature. Talking about the gods and the goddesses at the beginning of time. They lived many days, adding years to days. It's a theme of pagan literature, always there that the universe is forever. Okay, now we, we're sensitive, hopefully, to the fact that there's a spiritual issue. It's not just an intellectual issue. Look at the second paragraph from page 115. On the presupposition of paganism, modern science has developed a doctrine of natural law Hiding behind this legal metaphor, modern paganism seeks to establish an autonomous base for knowledge independent of God and His Word. An illusion is thus created that seems to provide the necessary constants for for mathematical calculations. Such constants or laws are then universalized throughout space and time far beyond mankind's local experience and data sets. All measurement of past historical time builds upon such constants that are hypothesized with, say, the speed of light and radioactive decay. See, what's happening? They're they're expanding their knowledge outside of the box. But you can only expand the knowledge outside of the box by conjecture. Well, why do you want to conjecture? Well, we call it law. It's natural law. Now, let's think about the word natural law. What does that convey to you? Natural law. What is the connotation? Very important connotation. Yes. That nature never changes. Exactly. A law? Why, that sounds profound. But just think about it. Why do you call it a law without a lawmaker? Who makes natural law? Of course, we know, but on a pagan basis. Isn't it striking that in order to ensure that knowledge, when extrapolated outside of the box, is okay to do, and sure we won't get in any trouble now, what are we doing? We're saying that that knowledge outside of the box is for sure... Because, after all, it's natural law. But how do you know it's natural law? Well, I call, tell, I, I call it that. In other words, you've exercised your Adamic nature, Genesis 1, thou shalt name, name, name. Here the pagan is exercising his dominion. He is. He's naming things. And he's named this conjecture process after a legal metaphor. And the thing just builds on itself. And Everybody talks about natural law. If you want to create a spinner sometime in the conversation, just say, well, I don't understand natural law. What do you mean? And play with a box for a little bit. Just see how far you can push it. I mean, just question somebody. See, if they really get the point that outside of the box you can't really be sure it's law because you never can check on it. Okay. Now, if you will look down on the bottom of page 115, I'm going to tell you a little story about three observers. We mentioned this in the discussion last week. Those of you who were here afterward, but this review won't hurt. Let's imagine a thought experiment. What we're going to do is we're going to take a trip back to Garden of Eden. We're going to go back to the sixth day of the universe. And we're going to talk about the creation of Adam. Not Eve. We could create a, tell a similar story about the creation of Eve. That would be even more exciting. Because quite clearly, Eve was supernatural. If you, if you want to metaphorize the creation of Adam from the dust of the earth and make that evolution, you've still got a problem. Where did Eve come from? The story won't let you allegorize that one. Okay. So here's Adam. And we have Observer A, Observer B. Observer C. Now, let's tell the story of the three observers. And this story should illustrate the point about natural law and where we stand as creationists. Observer A is watching God create Adam. And let's just say for the sake of argument, God creates Adam at 10 o'clock on the sixth day and between 10 o'clock and 10.05, God is working the earth and he shapes the body just like a sculpture just like an artist he shapes this body with his divine hands and then he blows into the body and it becomes man just as the Bible says surprise, surprise alright, so observer A is sitting there with a video camera and his video camera has a little timer in it so here's his video camera he's holding it up and he's clocking, making a videotape, and the thing—the clock down the bottom of the picture is clicking away. Time. 10.00, 10.01, 10.02, 10.03, 10.04. And he finishes his observation, 10.05. He's got a film of five minutes of creation activity. Now, Observer B comes on the scene at 10.10. Observer B, however, doesn't see Observer A. Observer B doesn't have any tools. Observer A has no idea God's disappeared, not there anymore. But what Observer B observes as he walks into the garden, he sees Adam. Observer B, taking having, we imagine him taking a time machine from our own day, looks at Adam and he sees he's about six foot two, weighs about 180 pounds um looks to me about 25 on what basis is observer b concluding that adam is 25 years old let's just think about that observation a moment out of his experience observer b think back again what have we said about experience we have said that it comes out of the box as Observer B, in his box of observations, has he ever observed a creation before? No. What has he observed, however, again and again and again and again to the point that he's convinced it's natural law? Babies being born and growing. So within his box, he sees that Adam is 25 years old. Observer A's answer to the question, how old Adam is, at 10.10. 10. If assuming that it's ended there, five minutes. Now, what are we going to do now about our dating systems? Got two observers. Both of them aren't lying, are they? Can you k- say that observer B is lying? No. Is he going on the basis of his experience and what he's defined to be his natural law? Yes. Why are we getting two different clocks' answers here? Does Adam look different to observer A than he looks to observer B? Is the data any different? Do A and B share the same data set? Let's think about that for a minute. What do we say the qualification of Observer B was? One of the things we said, when Observer B walked into the garden, what didn't he have? He came late, so he's talking about the past, and he doesn't have a video camera. What, in effect, does he not have then? He does not have observational data of what happened, does he? He has to go on the base of extrapolation. Now, let's bring in the spiritual aspect of the conflict. Just to show you, this is not a mathematical scientific problem. At 1010, from the other side of the garden, Observer C enters. Observer C, however, unlike Observer B, Observer C has also taken a time machine back. His box, he understands the same thing Observer B does, but Observer C has an additional quality. Observer C is buddy boy with Observer A. So Observer A walks over to him and says, Hey, look what I got on my video cam. Take a look at this. I was here, I saw it. Look what I saw. So now C has got to decide. Does he trust Observer B? Or does he trust Observer A? What would you do, and why? Put yourself in Observer C's position. You walked in late. You can't observe this. This is past time. So you're you're dealing with a historical question. You've got a guy who claims to have photographed this uh, stuff with a clock on it. You check out the clock, and the in the thing is 10:10, 10, 10, and your watch reads the same as the watch uh, the clock has games. Let me try that camera again oh yeah 1010 10. now think about the process if you will think about this simple little story of the three observers you've got chronology locked up on what basis if you are observer C, do you decide the question? why would you try, why would you te- why would you for example, why might you try say, I agree with Observer B, I did. what would happen? What would you be doing if you sided with Observer B against Observer A? What in effect would you be doing? Debbie? And, and what about A, his, his historical record? So, to agree with B means you put higher confidence in extrapolated natural law, than you do in eyewitness evidence. Witness that you can't get at, because by definition you weren't there, but someone else was there and is giving you eyewitness evidence. So, is this a little bit of a reflection on the in- what you're in- you believe about the integrity of Observer A? If Observer A has come forth to you and told you, I took this record, here's my camera, and I'm not lying to you, this is what I got. Now, if you side with Observer B, what else are you saying about the character of Observer A? He's either deceitful, or he, he, something happened on his camera. He must have been watching television or something. But this is, can't be real. You see? You see the questions that are involved? If you go back to this story time and time again. Every time you get involved in a dating question. the problem here is that when you are observer C walking in on the scene and you have to choose between this guy and this guy, you can't choose between them without going back to your basic presupposition of life. If you, observe, if you agree here, your basic presupposition of life is that the universe couldn't possibly do that. Right? Whatever this camera's recorded, man, this has got to be fake. Because I know the universe doesn't operate that way. Now, if you were Observer A, how would you feel? You're Observer A now, and I'm Observer C, and I say, I don't buy you. Buy this stuff. Hey, my buddy boy D over here, he... He's got it together. I don't know how you got the film, but it just can't be. Don't you feel slighted? I mean, for crying out loud, I was here and I filmed it. Don't tell me I didn't know what I was doing. It went on before my very eyes. All right, so, if you side with Observer B, your presupposition is, the worldview you have to hold is, that what goes on today always has and always will. And it's exactly what Peter warned against in 2 Peter 3, right? He said, All things continue as they were from creation. There's no such thing as interruptions. No such thing as any discontinuities. No such thing as any miracles. And Peter said, And therefore, you will deny the second heaven of Christ too. Very consistent. But if, on the other hand you agree with observer A, now what what is your presupposition that allows you to do that? What presupposition would allow you to agree with observer A over against B? What would you tell your friend B? And you you just say, you look at the camera, you look at the clock, you look at Adam, and you say, I'm sorry, I have to, this camera, something happened here. This must be possible. Now, what you're saying is that you believe in the integrity of Observer A. Okay? That story should summarize the principles now that we're going to illustrate in our clocks, the issue of clocks. I'm going to spend the rest of the time on a set of clocks, several of the clocks that are used in, in dating. Now, just to start us off in this area, what does the Bible say about the age of the earth? people sometimes say, it doesn't say anything about the age of the earth. Well, excuse me, but if we have a lineage from Adam to Jesus that's given in at least three places in the Bible, and we know that there's a connection here, and we say, well, maybe there's gaps in the genealogy. Well, there may be gaps, but there's only so many gaps you can put in a genealogy before it looks absolutely ridiculous. So, let's say this, this forces a, a limit to how the age between, uh, in, say, thousands of years. Let's just say the argument of, uh, say, 6,000, 7,000 years, something like that. Order of magnitude issue. Thousands of years. Okay? Now, what do we say about Genesis? When was Adam created? Sixth day. I oh, only got six days here, unless you want to make them ages. so, By any kind of scriptural interpretation, we're down to less than ten thousand years. Anybody got a clue as to what the popular going bet is on the age of the earth right now? Hmm? Billions of years. How many billion years? Anybody? Huh? Yes, four to five billion years, somewhere in there. We've got two different ages, don't we? What do we have in the garden? Between observer A, B, and C? Didn't we have an order of magnitude problem there? Five minutes? 25 years? What's the difference? The difference is the same thing that happened to the three observers. What do we have in this book? What do we have that is analogous to the video camera? we have a historical record by conjecturing or was the historical record the record of what actually happened by an observer who was the observer to five of the six days of creation God was so where do you suppose the narration came from the five days couldn't have been Adam he's got the record from the time he woke up Who's telling about the stars and the creation of the plants and all the rest? It had to come from God. Was he an observer to his own works? I hope so. Worshiping the wrong God if he isn't. So we have historical records. So this really isn't a tr- tremendous intellectual problem, is it? It's just the details are kind of messy. But I think everyone sees that the, what the problem is, what the, what the basic outline is. All right, let's look now at, the, at a clock. And so I'm going to go through some of the clocks that are mentioned in in the middle paragraph, on page 117, the last page in the handout for last week. Uh, I give you several of them. If you look there, you'll see. uh, If you look at the paragraph, a Pagan Age of the Earth, in the pagan view, present-day observations fix the value of all time constants. Any supposed discontinuities, such as the creation of flood, are ignored, and so on. What is not usually mentioned is that even with this method, there are widely varying ages that result. Now, I I give you four examples, and here's why I give you those four examples. I'll give you a few more up here. But I want you to just go into this gently. Here's the argument. These ages in this paragraph, those four examples, are examples of clocks that operate by natural law. In other words, I'm not saying those dates are correct. I'm saying if you want to play the natural law game, I'll play it with you. And I can find, on the basis of natural law, the fact that all natural law clocks don't coincide. We're not getting the same date off of all the clocks. Let's explain the first one. Well, so you'll appreciate there are more than that. Here's 12 terrestrial clocks. By the way, in this section, we're only dealing with clocks that are available locally in space. Next week, we'll talk about astronomical issues. But just a quick review. Here are 12 different clocks, all of which give different ages on the same premise, that if you measure the ticking rate of these clocks right now inside the box of observations and you extrapolate that clock rate out, and you f- ask where time t equals zero is, here are the dates you're getting on the right-hand column. Now, just look at the variation, none of which give four billion years. Let's go through these. The recorded history of man itself is kind of an indication. If men lived for millions of years, where are the records? What suddenly happened is that we don't have any more records before 3000 BC. Has anybody ever asked that? Isn't that interesting? You ever been in a course where they raise the question, what what happened, men just discover how to write in 3000 B.C.? After a million years of walking around with clubs? Population growth. This is a ripper, this one. This is really cute. Easy to understand. You know how we can tell the population growth rate of the earth? We've got a subset of human beings called Jews. When was the first Jew? Anybody? Who was he? Abraham. He lived about 2,000 B.C. So what do you do? You take the population of Jews today and you work backwards to Abraham in 2,000 B.C. That's 4,000 years. Every Jew came out of Abraham. And you've got built-in corrections for your clock because it's very conservative, right? Because the Jews, I mean, Hitler killed 6 million of them. So you had a lot of setbacks to their growth rates. So you can't argue that that number you're getting is a massively overestimate of growth rate of Jews because it includes all the genocides of history. Now, if you can get all the Jews that now live out of one man in 4,000 years, you take that same growth rate to the world population, apply the rate work backwards, and you get no greater than 9,000 years for all human beings. Human race couldn't have been around for more than 9,000 years. If it was, we'd be packed like sardines, five people deep. Where are all the people? Another one is the decay of the Earth's magnetic field. Subtle one, but the Earth's magnetic field has been measured since the 19th century. About 18-something, they started measuring it. And the interesting thing that they're getting is that the strength of the Earth's field is decreasing. Well, Thomas Barnes points out that if that's so, then as far back as you go in history, the Earth's magnetic field must have been stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And if you make the Earth's magnetic field too strong, that is, you keep perpetuating the clock backwards, the Earth would have to be a star to support the magnetic field energy. So you have an upper limit there of 10,000 years. Carbon-14. That's an interesting one. Through measurements, carbon-14 is one of the dating. That's critical because it's one of the center things of dating back to, say, 30 or 40,000 years. That's used. Carbon-14 ratios with carbon-12. Same element, different atom. Carbon-14 breaking down. Now, what's interesting is carbon-14 is not in equilibrium. All the dating methods assume that because the Earth must be millions of years old, that surely the carbon 14 has had time to become in an equilibrium. And all the equations are built on what they call an equilibrium model. But if you take the observations as far back as we can go, you know, in a few decades, it turns out that carbon 14 is not in equilibrium, it's still building up. And if it's still building up, it means the Earth is young enough that it hasn't had time to stabilize yet, which means that you have a boundary of 10,000 years. Helium content of the atmosphere is another one. It's not in equilibrium. It's building up. So you can tr- all these things are basically. We're not arguing that these dates are right. Don't I repeat my point? We're not arguing these dates are right. All we're saying is the logic behind them is identical to the logic on the other clocks. You know? will the real clock, please stand up. Which one? Buildup of meteoric dust. By the way, these numbers here are the rating of a Christian physicist on a scale of 0 to 5 and what he thinks the reliability of those clocks are as far as a good argument. But here's a cute one. Can measure the, the meteoric dust as it's settling down on the Earth? Well, if we know the rate of dust fall, and we know how much the average meteoric dust is on the Earth's surface, we ought to be able to obtain the Earth's age and it comes out 100,000 years, not 4 billion. The rate of erosion of the continents. Obviously, the continents are running down. Rain washes off the continents and takes sand and dirt with it. You measure that. Well, the continents then would have washed out after so many years, so they couldn't have been around more than a million years. Not four billion. Cooling of the earth's surface. That's a cute one. You know who invented that argument? That was Lord Kelvin in the 19th century, who happened to be a Christian who argued with Darwin. And Kelvin had heat transfer equations, and he showed that the Earth's losing so much heat that you can't explain the warmth of the interior. If the Earth is very, very old, it would have frozen in the interior. or well, not frozen, but it would have cooled off. So he had an upper boundary of 24 million. And here's another one that's interesting, decrease in the Earth's rotation rate. Now, what's significant about that is the Earth is slowing down in its rotation rate. Now, if it's slowing down in its rotation rate, and it's been slowing down at that same rate, you go back in time, what happens to the Earth's spin? It speeds up. If the Earth keeps spinning up and fast, all the continents, because of centrifugal force, would be spread out along the equator. So these are just some arguments of why this clock system isn't quite so cut and dried as you would like to believe. I'm going to show conclude the class tonight with showing a, a rather spectacular one that Came up in a court trial in Louisiana. The evolutionary party saw this argument, couldn't answer it, and the head, I think he was the head of the American Geological Society, was so offended that one of the uh, Christian physicists brought this up that he said, I can't answer it, it's just a tiny mystery. All right, let's see this so called tiny mystery. rather exciting implication of this tiny mystery. Those little circles are dyed sections of mica rock under a microscope. The man who studied this probably knows more about this than any living person. The man who originated this was a Canadian back many years ago did a study and uh, D- uh, Dr. Gentry um, went ahead and, and he uh, embellished the work. But those little patterns, I should, I guess, flip them upside down. I guess I got them this way. Is that right? B, A. No, it's still wrong. Okay. Mica is important because mica represents slices off of very old rock, the bedrock of the planet. So whatever we observe by way of history in that rock, we're not talking about the sedimentary rock on top. We're talking about the bedrock of our planet. And what Gentry and these other guys notice is that if you slice the mica very, very thin, appropriately color it, you get these strange things that show up. What causes those things? It turns out that what causes them is radioactive decay. And at the core of each one of those circles, you see these little dark things. Those dark things is the element or the compound in which the element is located that decayed. And when that element decayed by radioactive decay, it emitted radiation. And these circles are the burn marks left by the radiation of those elements as they deteriorate magne- and radioactively decay. It also turns out that we can tell what those elements are by measuring the diameter of those circles, and you can work back. Here's a three-dimensional view of what those little things are. The mica shows them as circles because we sliced the mica, but if we didn't slice the mica they'd be spherical. At the center you have the element that's decaying. It radiates energy and as it decays in certain stages, the energy is left on these outer rings. This is polonium 218, a halo cross-section. Polonium 218 has been the identifying thing at the center of these pictures. Many of those are polonium-218 radio halos. What's significant about them is written in the language just below that sphere. Half-life. Three minutes. Half-life means the average existing time period for that element. Three minutes. Now you could say, well, maybe polonium-218 came from another element that decayed, that had millions of years of life, and it came to the polonium. Polonium, boom, three minutes, and it decayed to something else. Could explain it that way, except for one problem. In this case, there's no known precursor of polonium-218. No known precursor in the decay chain. That means that polonium 218 was the original element. Now, anybody see where I'm headed with this thing? Rather astounding conclusion. Here's the point. What do we usually get in our textbooks about the earth when it was first formed? Was it a solid or was it a molten blob? Molten blob. With this rock then have been crystallized when the earth was created or when it was first formed would have taken millions of years to cool down out of this blob to the point where we had crystallized mica the problem is how do you preserve this 218 from decaying it's got to wait until the earth is all cooled down and crystallized before it can leave those burn marks so either you've got a problem here either way you go you can argue that Radioactive decay didn't start until some other time, late, recently, in which case now you've got a denial of the radioactive decay constant. It's not a radioactive decay constant, it's a radioactive decay variable. Or, it is a constant, and what we're observing are the finger marks of God's creation. That God created the earth instantly in crystallized mica form. The rock was created like this. The decay happened in the first three minutes of the universe. In which case now the Earth doesn't fit the whole model from which the Earth came as a molten blob for millions of years. Now, to argue against this, obviously this is quite troublesome to evolutionists. So what they have tried to argue is that these holes, these things you see here, were not there at first... But rather, in tiny little cracks in the mica, they were dissolved in water and ooched their way through the mica and just happened to rest at that point. Does anybody see a little problem with that? Now, that has been known to happen. Let's call leaching. But let's just suppose it happened. Let's just suppose those did leach into that position. What do we say the half-life was? Three minutes. It leached, what not it, thirty seconds? Got into position and then decayed. Or if it did leach and took its time leaching, you wouldn't see a sphere. What would you see? A streak along the leaching pathway. But you don't observe any streaks there, do you? No streaks there. Just circles. So, how do you explain that one? They didn't have an explanation. The man in the trial mocked Dr. Gentry and said, just a tiny mystery. So, here is how evidence is created. You see, they can talk about evidence all they want to until we creationists bring up the evidence, and then all of a sudden it's excused as tiny mysteries. Dr. Gentry's diagram and conclusion for his finding is that what he's discovered... By the way, the thanks that Dr. Gentry got was that all of his fellowship money dried up from the National Science Foundation after he testified at the trial. We're all open-minded, of course, in this country. Freedom of speech, etc. This would be the the billion-year view. Here you have... All of the universe from the Big Bang, the stars form, the supernova, the solar nebula, the Earth forms. You would have had all the natural activity gone by the time the Earth solidified. 4.5 billion years. Precambrian granites. They form after, after all this activity has gone away. That can't be. That's why Gentry points out that what we had is the chemical elements were called into existence and the primordial polonium halos, are extinct natural radioactivity, reduces time period to less than three minutes. Either you accept that or you must deny the fact that radioactive decay is a constant. Now, I watched one time in a university physics department when Gentry gave, and, and he was smart, he didn't go into all these conclusions. He just went around the country for a few years getting his work accepted before he drew the conclusions. Smart, slick operator. And I was in a room when he did this at a major university. And I knew what he was up to. So I wanted to watch what happened to the atmosphere in the room when he began to present his little story. And he didn't go into what I did tonight and explain it. He didn't have to. These PhDs took one look at those polonium halos in three and a half minute half-life and they knew very well where things were going to lead. Gentry got about 15 minutes into his presentation and I'm a meteorologist but I don't always carry a thermometer with me. But it seemed like the temperature of the room dropped. Coal front passed. And there was a decided shift in everybody in that room unspoken, but you could tell by the rate of the questions. Oh, it's got, it's got to be something wrong with this. Gentry, you screwed up. Not a careful researcher. etc., etc. Well, the fact was they were stung by this. And that's when I first began to realize, ha-ha, I know that this guy's got something solid. Because I sat there for an hour and I wanted to listen. What kind of an answer are you guys going to come up with when this cutie no answers, just a lot of bad research or something. The funny part was, all the research, not the conclusions for the research, but all this stuff had been sponsored by the National Science Foundation, funded, and peer-reviewed. Before they realized, uh-oh, before we review this, we've got to watch what we've just done. We've opened Pandora's box with this guy. And, of course, they did, and then they cut the funds off so he can't do any more research. He was reduced to doing it in his kitchen sink at home on Saturdays. man who knows more about pleochoric halos than any other man living on the earth today has to do his research in his wife's kitchen sink. So, this is what goes on. And I tell you the story because it's real, folks. This is the battle we're in. The other side is not going to bow the knee. And they were going to fight us In every area they can fight us. And we have to stand straight and we are not going to be doormats in this battle. But it is a spiritual battle. The, The handout you have tonight finishes these and goes into the astronomical side. A little technical, I understand. But the only reason why I'm giving you these appendices is because inevitably somebody comes up and asks questions about this or that or something else. And all I'm trying to do is just cover my bases. And go through this material. And I know it may bother some of you, but I hope not, because this is the kind of stuff you read in Time magazine. You get it on your TV programs. You read about it in the newspapers. You're getting hosed with this stuff all the time. And I'm trying to show you you don't have to take it that way. Father, we thank You that Your Word is truth. We thank You that You have remained faithful and that when all is said and done, at the end of history, when we have you to guide us in our interpretation, all the data will perfectly fit the text that you gave us centuries ago. And we ask that you would encourage our hearts to be thankful for your faithfulness, that you are not a God of deception. You do not leave Scripture around to be laughed at, to be ridiculed and ignored. You leave it around as the only guide for us to learn anything out finite knowledge. We can know nothing except what you and your word do you now for this treasure and this gift. In Christ's name, amen.